for joining us this week on the Steve Schramm Show. We are pleased to be here with you. Another week bringing you truth from God's Word, helping you to become a more passionate and um, knowledgeable servant of Jesus. We want to answer a question this week. Was God's original creation perfect? Uh, What do we mean when we talk about the initial conditions, if you will, that God created of this planet? Is it really perfect? Is that what the Bible says? If so, what does that mean? What does that mean for us now? What does it mean for our future, etc.? So we want to deal with that question and hope to give you a biblical answer that is satisfying from a biblical perspective, theological perspective, philosophical question uh, perspective, and then we're going to answer some questions. So the creation account in the Bible, you know, we, we talked about this uh, a few times in the past few weeks from different angles. And here again, the subject has come up this time in discussion with some individuals on a group on Facebook. I was involved in a conversation on this just briefly. I didn't dig my heels in too hard on this. I just kind of wanted to get a feel for what people were saying and jump in with my own perspective. And uh, the conversations that we were having prompted this podcast episode. Many people have a misunderstanding. Well, we have a really it's a two or or threefold uh, problem here. You seem to have some on the extreme young Earth creationist side who, just frankly, maybe they haven't studied any of the uh, more recent literature of creationist uh, thinkers from the biblical perspective who also have influence from those in the scientific perspective who can help uh, shed light on what some of these terms mean and how saying certain things that we're not committed to say biblically could be problematic for us from a scientific perspective. And I'll explain via some of, uh, excuse me, I'll, I'll explain some of what I mean by that as we go through this episode. But what I want you to understand, first of all, is that we have this this extreme where we have people who don't seem to really understand what they mean when they say the original creation was perfect. Well, and then we've got another thing going on where this idea of saying that it's not perfect is used to invite all kinds of things that I think we don't want to attribute to God's creation in the beginning. And I'm thinking here, things like animal death before the fall. We don't want to say that. We, we don't want animal death before the fall for numerous reasons. We'll talk about a couple of those here today. So there are people who are actually using this notion that uh, they say creation was not originally perfect. And in so saying, they further go on to reject that there was not animal death and suffering, etc., prior to the fall. So we don't want to say that. At least I don't. And there are still others, some of these people will fall into that last category as well, who misunderstand, frankly, uh, the young age creationist 
teaching on this and think that all young age creationists want to say that creation was absolutely perfect by any reasonable definition of that word in the very beginning. And so while I think it's still accurate to say that God created for Adam and Eve a paradise, I do not think, I do not think it is appropriate to say that it was perfect, at least in the sense that we usually mean that word. And I think we want to try to keep uh, our language pretty consistent and similar. We want to be able to say that what we mean by this is what most people mean by it. So that's the angle that we're going to come from. So let's begin to dive into this a little bit. Now, first of all, we need to know what the Bible actually says about it. Does the Bible anywhere say or imply that the original creation was perfect? Now, something I did not do prior to sitting down to start recording was to come up with a definition of the word perfect. I guess maybe I thought that um, just using the common sense notion, the common sense understanding of the word would help us to figure out what we mean. It would help us to provide that standard against which we want to measure. So while I don't have a philosophical definition um, in front of me that would be maybe perfectly accurate, I say let's go with the traditional definition, how we might understand it, of, you know, perfect being without any kind of blemish, without any imperfection existing at all. Everything absolutely working as intended and uh, nothing failing to be 100% right and in the right condition. So you see what I'm saying here. We don't make any room on this view for anything that could be considered an imperfection or a blemish in any sense of the word. Something could not fail to accomplish that which it was meant to accomplish on this definition, I think, as well. So we'll work with that definition, and we will go from there. So what does the Bible actually say when it comes to this? Does the Bible say that the original creation was perfect? Well, the language used by God as he inspired the authors to write this down was not language of perfection. However, it was language of completion and it was also language of satisfaction. Here is what he says in Genesis one thirty one. It simply says, And God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. Now, remember, all throughout up to this point, we have had God saying that his creation was good, and now we have this final completion, this uh, final uh, um, motif of, of God looking at what he has created and, in a sense, being, being proud of it, beholding it, saying it's very good in the Hebrew, tov, mehot, very good. God saw everything that he had made, and it was very good. It was this confirmation that what God made was good and right in his eyes. Now, we must be careful not to imply, or uh, maybe a better thing to say would be 
not to assume from God saying that it was very good to make this logical leap to then say that it was perfect. We need to be very careful of adding our own ideas to the Word of God. This goes for everybody involved in this conversation. And this idea of perfection on the original creation is a false idea, I think, and I'm going to try to prove, that we have uh, put in to the Word of God somehow throughout uh, somebody, I don't know who the influence was on this, but somebody got into the idea of a lot of young age creationists, that we had a perfect creation in the beginning, and it was not so. And I'm going to argue that, and I'm going to show you what I mean by this, and I think as we go on, you'll agree with me, even if you're a little hesitant to agree with me right now. I think you'll agree with me by the time uh, we're finished through this part of, of the study, okay? So we've got to be careful of adding our own ideas to the Word of God. So could we say it's perfect? Well, no, I don't think we could. So what things could we say about it? Well, I didn't write any of this down, but again, as we read the Scripture, we find things that it would be acceptable to say. For example, I think it would be acceptable to say that there was no sin in the beginning. That would be an acceptable statement to say. I think it would be an acceptable statement to say that there was no death of any kind in the very beginning. Now, that doesn't mean that the world was perfect, whatever that means. It just means there was no death. I think it would be accurate to say that everything that God made accomplished the purpose for which God made it. So that is to say that it is functional and it is purposeful, but that's not to say that it is perfect. So I'm not going to keep on uh, going through examples, but you understand what I'm saying. As you read the scripture, we see these things, these statements that would be legitimate to make about it, but that doesn't mean that we can infer this idea of perfection, especially not our conception, our own idea of what this word perfection means. I think it would be very inappropriate for us to apply that to the uh, Bible because it leads to two problems when looking at these first chapters of Genesis. Now, here are some of those problems. I'm going to call these problems with the perfection hypothesis. All right, number one, it's vague. It, it, it's vague. Another way of saying what I'm trying to communicate here is to say that it's relative. I mean, what does it mean to say perfect? Perfect to one person is different than what it means to say perfect to another person. And so someone might say, well, of course what I mean is perfect in the sight of God. Well, if that's the case, then we want to ask what God said about it. And God did not say it was perfect. God said it was very good. So we have to flow out from that. We have to look at the circumstances, like I said a minute ago. We have to look at the things that we can say and say, okay, these things to God are very good. But there's other things that are not mentioned, that, which means that the scripture is not committing us to one view or the other on them, that if we have this perfection hypothesis, that uh, are unlikely or implausible. And the reality is that we are imposing this idea 
and it's vague. Uh, we don't know what it means even to say that the original creation was perfect because it's a vague term, it's a relativistic term, and if we're looking at this from God's perspective, which we ought to be, he didn't say it was perfect. He said it was very good. The second thing about it is that it's unlikely. It's unlikely. Was the second law of thermodynamics in operation? Think about that. Was the second law of thermodynamics in operation during creation week? Or maybe we could even say, you know, shortly after the sixth day. Or on the sixth day, when creation was said to have been very good. Was the second law of thermodynamics in operation? Well, common creationist thought 20, 30 years ago was no, was no, that the laws of thermodynamics were probably a result of the fall. But that idea has since been overturned by creationist uh, theologians and scientists and other thinkers because certain things are required in our everyday experience uh, that we have every reason to think we're going on then that do require the second law of thermodynamics. And if you understand the second law, I think you'll see how this is possible or how uh, how this is necessary. Um, uh, walking, talking, these are things that we know from biblical statements that were happening in the beginning. And any world in which a human being is walking and talking is a world in which the laws of thermodynamics are operating. But that presents us with a problem because how how could any world in which this operates be considered perfect? Remember, the law of thermodynamics is a law of increasing entropy. And even though it's not really precise to say that it is a law of decay, what it produces uh, ultimately is decay in a sense. And so could we really say that any world in which this is operating is perfect? Well, if we want to say that, then I, I think we start creating a nuanced definition of perfect. And when we start to do that, then we start, I think, to leave uh, credulity because we want to try to keep things in their normal um, sense. Certainly, we're not going to argue that Genesis should be taken literally and, and the words should be taken in their plain sense meaning. And then we're going to try to redefine the word perfect to make it work in this scenario. I, I don't think that's going to work. So, it's vague and it's unlikely and it's impractical. Uh, we know that erosion was happening. I mean, the uh, dry land ha had to rise up from the earth. There was water displacement and things like that going on. There were rocks that were created. Surely the process of erosion in a lake or a stream somewhere was happening before the fall. I don't think the Bible precludes anything like that. And again, insofar as these things are understood to operate as they normally do, I don't really see a reason to think that streams and lakes and rivers, etc., would act differently in pre-fall conditions than they do today. Uh, you know, these things are going to require a definition of perfect that would be 
that would be um, unique. I don't think we could say that any world in which erosion was happening and was erosion, er, eroding away the material of rock, etc., I don't think we could call that perfect. Uh, craters. There are cratering theories that have been developed by young age creationist scientists that we think these cratering events were actually happening during creation week as a, a mechanism that God used to actually help form some of the planets in our solar system. And they would explain also the cratering, some of the cratering that we see going on even on our moon. But if cratering is happening during creation, is creation really perfect? Surely, surely cratering is a perfect example of imperfection on any reasonable definition. And yet, we have very good reason to believe that this cratering was happening pre-fall. And if that's the case, uh, we can't say it was perfect. What about precious stones and diamonds? You ever heard the term a diamond in the rough? I mean, these are things that we know from the biblical record existed in the original creation or shortly thereafter. And yet, in order to even produce these things, we see processes and things that take place that we would not be able to include on any definition of perfect. And the last thing, so, so far we've seen it's vague, it's unlikely, it's impractical, and then finally it's misleading. It's just misleading. Um, as previously mentioned, this idea of original creation being perfect is simply an overstatement of the biblical claim. And so, it invites unnecessary and undue um, criticism from detractors. And I mentioned that a little bit earlier. You know, we've, we've got people who use this notion of, of the original creation being perfect and that being the teaching of young age creationists. And they try to argue that, uh, no, creation was not perfect. It's just that everything was accomplishing the purpose for which God intended it. And now I agree with that. I'm going to come back to that in just a minute. I, I really want to say that that is what God meant by very good. I really do think that it was um, everything f functioning according to the purpose for which God intended it. However, this is where we have to go back and look at those biblical statements. We have to look at explicit statements in the the word to see what God means by very good, or at least to see what kind of statements we can include in this idea of a very good creation. And when we do that, I think we preclude what folks are trying to say that it means. So that's why I say this term is misleading because it opens this door for um, undue and unjustified, really, criticism from people who don't agree with us. So that brings us to this. So we, we've got, first of all, that the Bible claims it was very good and not perfect, and then we saw some problems with the perfection hypothesis. But then finally, what about some caveats and this textual license that people take. Now, this brings us right down to that Facebook conversation that I talked about in the very beginning, that 
I was having on this issue. And really, here's the here's the question when it comes to people, what they're wanting to say when it comes to the original um, creation and it being perfect. Does this allow for animal death pre-fall? Does the notion that creation was not perfect, as I've argued, does that allow for animal death pre-fall? Well, I think obviously not. I think obviously not. Because we don't base our understanding of there not being any soulish animal death pre-fall on some vague notion of creation being perfect. That's a straw man on the part of anybody who wants to argue it. That is not what the young age creationist teaches. And I'm not going to rehash uh, explicitly here, my, my thinking on a pre-fall animal death, if you'd like, you can go back and purchase, or not purchase, but uh, excuse me, you can go back and listen to our podcast series on this, episode 36, 37, and 38. We did a series on creation and predation, where we really uh, dove into this issue of pre-fall animal death. And the reality is, as I've argued in, in those podcasts, that the absence of animal death relies on textual and theological arguments. It's, it's not some vague assumption of the original creation being perfect. It's actually rooted in explicit statements of Scripture, as well as, I think, important theological arguments that relate to um, the effects of sin on the original creation, and indeed why we even needed a Savior to start with. And I think that this is an extremely important issue, and I don't think that we can say that just because the original creation was not perfect by our subjective definition of whatever that means. I don't think we can use that to just rule out pre-fall animal um, or argue for, I guess I should say, pre-fall animal death and suffering. I don't think that's the reality. So uh, what is meant then by this term, very good? Well, like I mentioned, if God is the master engineer, it seems to me that his very good creation would mean that everything was created and functioned properly in accomplishing its intended purpose. I mean, this seems right to me, that uh, when God creates something, uh, he is purposeful. God creates things for a reason. Of course, the ultimate reason he gives us in Revelation 4.11 is that everything was created for his glory. But everything that was created, it seems to me, has a function. It has a purpose that it was to attend to. And things today do not always hit the mark. I mean, as a matter of fact, that's what sin is. The word uh, sin literally just means missing the mark. We miss that mark of sinlessness, of the absence of sin. And again, we can say that in the beginning there was no sin, but that doesn't mean that humanity was perfect or that the world was perfect. 
It just means what it means. It means that there was no sin. And so in missing the mark, that means we now, every day, miss out on accomplishing the purpose for which our creation was intended. Now, how do you think about that? Man, what a what a culturally, politically incorrect, but theologically rich thought. One of these days, thanks to what Christ did on Calvary for us, one of these days, we're finally going to know what it's like to accomplish the purpose for which we were intended. That is to be sinless representatives of God made in his image. So look, as long as we're not attempting to support unscriptural ideas like pre-fall animal death, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that God's original creation was just what God said it was. Very good. We don't have to go further than that and argue for some vague definition of perfection because I think there are good reasons from the text itself and also from science and logic and philosophy um, to, to think that that is not what God intended to communicate. All right, let's take a quick break and we'll come back and deal with some questions. We think our greatest contribution to the kingdom here at Steve Schramm Ministries is the teaching and training of Christians to become confident and passionate servants of Jesus. One of the primary ways we do this is through speaking at churches and live events. So if you're interested in inviting us in to address tough topics such as the reliability of the Bible, the historicity of Jesus, creation versus evolution, the existence of of objective truth and morality, then you will want to consider bringing us in. SteveShram.com slash speaking. You can go there to get all the details, see a list of our most popular sermons, and fill out the contact form to invite us in. It just takes a moment. Again, all you have to do is go to SteveShram.com slash speaking, scroll to the bottom of the page, and fill out the contact form there to inquire about bringing us in. We're excited about the possibility of being able to address your church or your event with compelling truth and a clear gospel presentation. steveschramcom slash speaking and fill out the contact form. We'll be glad to help you out. All right, as we return to this week's episode, we want to take a couple questions and answer them that we found on Quora this week. And again, I think these are just such engaging questions. They're um, really a lot more thoughtful than some of the uh, questions that get asked directly to me. You seem to encounter some of the same ones over and over again when you're looking on social media and and people email them to you. By the way, it's a good time to remind you that I do love to take your questions. If you'd like to email steve at steveshram.com, you can send questions in. Or if you just go to the website, steveshram.com, you can click the uh, uh, button. I think it's gray. It used to be blue. I think it's gray now. Click the button to the right side of the page to actually record your voice and leave a voicemail. And unless you tell me otherwise, um, I will take that as permission to actually play your question here on the podcast. You can just simply start by introducing yourself. Say, hey, my name is so-and-so. And if you have a a website or a blog or something like that, you're, you're welcome to put that out there uh, and, and, and tell everybody um, 
and uh, ask your particular question. I think you have a 90 second limit on that because I have a free account with the company that provides that. So if you'll keep your question to within 90 seconds, that would be helpful for us anyway. But uh, just go to steveschram.com, click ask a question. On the right-hand side, it's the gray button along the right-hand border, and you can go ahead and ask your question there. Or if you don't want to do it that way, just shoot us an email, steve at steveschram.com, and we will process that and get it in the queue to answer. So this first question goes like this. How did Jonah, the minor prophet of the Old Testament, survive the acid inside the tummy of that whale well let's you know we'll, we'll get a little uh, uh, picky about that and say that um, again the bible doesn't actually say it was a whale it simply says that it was a big fish and uh, if, if what they meant uh, back in that day was a whale by that well that's fine uh, but I, that's not clear to me and so i don't necessarily think we should uh, think that uh, unless it just helps you imagine somehow that this particular miracle was easier accomplished by a whale than a big fish. So that is something that we will set to the side. Just a couple uh, thoughts about that. Uh, again, the question is, how did he survive uh, the stomach acid inside the whale? Well, I think that's a fair question. Uh, however, um, first of all, he may not have. Uh, some scholars actually think that Jonah died and was resurrected. And I think this is plausible. Now, it's not really the sense in which I have always understood the story uh, growing up. But as I read it later in life after uh, reading after others who had different opinions on it, uh, I've come to think that this this is rather a, a, a plausible way of, of thinking about it, that actually Jonah did uh, die and that God resurrected him from the whale of the fish. In other words, it's not as though um, Jonah was standing down there uh, living amongst the uh, guts of the other things that the whale had, or the fish rather, had eaten that day. Uh, we we kind of have this idea, I think, of that. However, it's not necessarily the case that that's how it went down. And I think one of the best scriptural proofs for this is indeed that Jesus compares analogically this motif of Jonah and being swallowed by the great fish with indeed his own resurrection, his own uh, death and resurrection. And mm, when I look at that, I think, well, yeah, sure, it's just an analogy. But I mean, in order for analogies to work, they have to communicate truth value. There has to be truth to the analogy that underlies it. And so I think this could actually be a really good argument for saying that Jonah actually died and was resurrected. Now, you can disagree with me if you'd like to. I'm okay with that. Uh, don't send me a bunch of hate mail if you don't think I'm, I'm right on that. I would like to know if you have scriptural reasons that that would not be the case. 
but maybe think about that, and that's one way of, 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 of looking at it. Now, of course, there are those who think that this just didn't happen at all. This is just some ancient Near Eastern legendary story. There are probably parallels in other people groups, um, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I haven't looked at, at some of those um, at specific claims in depth. However, I would highly doubt that that's the case, given that I think it's almost certainly not the case in every other case that I have studied. So I kind of doubt that this is just, uh, that this is something that didn't actually happen. I am persuaded that it happened. It's recorded in the biblical record. Jesus referred to it analogically. And again, I think truth value is being uh, communicated there. And so I do think that this actually happened. This is just one way. Um, The second thought I have about him is that it was, well, a miracle. (laughs) if this happened, and I think it did, then it was miraculous, one way or the other, a resurrection or not, which means that in whatever way it was done, God preserved him. So, given that it was a miracle, uh, I mean, I'm going to be a little facetious here, but if God's God, and he is, and this was a miracle, and if he intended this to be recorded in his word as a true thing that actually happened, uh, I, I mean, God could have turned it into a, a, a hill in, in there uh, for uh, our, our brother, uh, Prophet Jonah. Um, I mean, uh, let's just be honest. I mean, he could have made, if this really happened, went into the belly of a fish. Now, I'm sure that he didn't make it Hilton conditions. I'm just saying that this was miraculous. And if miraculous, I think there's uh, uh, no reason to to think that God didn't provide the special conditions in the belly of that fish for Jonah to be preserved, again, according to the purpose uh, for which God had this scenario play out. God did whatever he needed to do for this scenario to, to play out and to accomplish what he intended it to. So whether... Jonah actually died and was resurrected or was somehow supernaturally preserved throughout this process. Um, I don't know. I'm not sure which is the more uh, plausible interpretation of of this. Um, But if this actually happened, and I think it did, uh, then one way or the other, Jonah survived the stomach acid in the tummy of that whale through some sort of either divine preservation or a divine resurrection. That would be the answer I'd give to that particular uh, questioner. Our second and final question we want to tackle this week is uh, a fun one. I really like this question. Uh, I I love one of my favorite kinds of questions to tackle um, are questions that are a logical fallacy. That is a complex question. So they assume things outright that are not true given certain circumstances. And so we get to to really unpack those questions and pick them apart. And the way, the reason, uh, at least one reason that I really like picking apart questions like this on the podcast is to help you. Because as we look at these questions, some of these are questions that are of the type that you will get as you're interacting with those who are unbelievers. And so sometimes people knowingly ask loaded questions, but other times they just don't know any better. They they are operating under their own assumptions, and they ask these questions under their own assumptions and have never really thought to look at 
at the world uh, differently. And so that is why I think this is just a, a, a beautiful thing for us to do, to be able to unpack these questions. So here's the one that we are going to tackle. 99%, according to this core questioner, 99% of Earth's species are dead. Why would God let that happen? 99% of Earth species are dead. Why would God let that happen? Now, of course, there are quite a few things going on. This is a why would God question uh, to start with. And I'm always hesitant to answer these because only with respect to some very specific things does God give us any insight into why some things happen. Uh, In Scripture, we see examples where we can point back to um, earlier times in the life of some biblical characters and say that, okay, we understand now why this had to happen. Here, I'm thinking of something like the life of, of Joseph. It's clear when we get to the end of the life of Joseph what God's purpose was in allowing those circumstances that he allowed. And we can, we can really see the sovereignty of God working in such a situation. We sometimes in Scripture, as I referred to earlier, have these direct statements Why did God create everything? Well, the ultimate purpose was for his glory. He created them for his glory, Revelation 4, 11 says. So we do have answers to some why would God or why did God kind of questions. But not all. So I would just caution you when you're when you when you when you have these why questions to take a pause and to say, are we really in a place given the existence of God to even answer this? And I think if there is a scriptural reason, a scriptural answer, I guess, to the question, then give that. Give the scriptural answer. Say this is why God said he did it. I've got no reason to argue with him. Otherwise, leave it alone. Say I'm not going to speak for God here. You could say, okay, well, I have two or three thoughts on this, but make sure that you stress that they're just your thoughts. You're not speaking for God in that sense because he hasn't revealed his reasoning. Um, if he hasn't revealed it in his word. So that's just a tip for you when you're looking at why questions to first of all stop and think about the question and then proceed to answer it once you have a little bit more uh, information and you've reflected on it. Now, the other thing that happens with this particular question, again, 99% of Earth's species are dead. Why would God let that happen? Notice that this answer, or this question rather, assumes old age creationism. It assumes old age creationism. Um, on the young age creationist view, and I'm not going to go um, all into the scientific reasons behind this question, okay, uh, because we only have a few minutes left here. Um, but on the young age creationist view, we can have a, a, a f- face value interpretation of the fossil record. We think that there's probably not many more. There probably are some, to, to be sure, but there's probably not many more species than what we find living today, plus in the fossil record, that need to be accounted for because we think the global flood laid down a, a, a pretty accurate understanding of the diversity and uh, disparity, etc., that we've that we had uh, among pre-flood organisms, and so we don't think that there is a need 
to have representatives from any um, other organisms than those. And we see in the fossil record approximately 250,000 organisms. And today we have, uh, well, when I say organism, I really I mean species of organism uh, in the fossil record. And today we have uh, about a million observed. There's an estimated 8 million species in, in existence alive today, but about uh, a little over a million observed species and 250,000 preserved in the fossil record. And many of those we still do observe today. So... This question assumes old age creationism. And the reason is because there is, uh, strictly speaking, missing time in the fossil record um, th- that needs to be accounted for with respect to the organisms one would find in there. And when you do that math, when you do that math, now get this, we observe 250,000 organisms in the fossil record. But when you do the math of what should be there, given a 4.5 billion year old Earth, that estimate creeps up quickly. There is an estimated 5 billion organisms missing from the fossil record with a number closer to upwards of 50 billion that some think is probably more accurate of organisms that we do not have in the fossil record that would have been expected to be there. And as far as I'm aware, this is pretty much uncontested. Now, the reasoning for why this might be is contested, uh, uh, to, to be sure, uh, there uh, the people who do argue for this view um, have their have their reasons. I don't think they're right, but they have their reasons for why we would expect uh, this. Um, so those would need to be dealt with in any conversation where you you take this issue on, really. But the point is salient that they um, admit that we have somewhere between five billion and 50 billion organisms missing from the fossil record. And so this question of 99% of Earth species are dead, why would God let that happen? Well, you see, not only is it a why question, but it assumes old age creationism. And I, I want to uh, agree. If, if this is a problem, then it's a problem in the sense that it's going to deal with unjustified pre-fall animal death, right? Because we're talking about time, deep time before the existence of humans where animals were suffering and dying, killing each other, etc. Nature, red and tooth and claw, the whole nine for billions and billions of years. So this question assumes old age creationism. So if it is a problem, then that's the nature of the problem for the Christian. It's going to deal with unjustified pre-fall animal death. Um, because it, there's the direct answer to the question um, is, why would God let that happen? Well, you know, one, one could argue because of free will and sin, etc. But again, um, that's what I would say. I would say that because we live in a in a fallen, sinful world, that that is why God wouldn't let that happen. But again, because it assumes old age creationism, it's actually more of a theological question for the the, the professing Christian. It's going to deal with that unjustified pre-fall animal death. And I, I, along with the core questioner, would love to find a satisfactory old earth creationist answer to this question.
I'd love to, but it hasn't happened yet. The best they can give is that some philosophers have been able to show that animals, while they they feel pain, they don't have conscious awareness of the fact I am in pain. So they feel pain, but they don't have a conscious awareness of the fact I am in pain. That has been offered uh, by, for example, Michael Murray is one person who um, who put that out there. The book that we actually are, uh, interviewed, um, Josh Shoemaker and Gary Branis, uh, a while back, and they authored a book called God in the World of Insects, and there was a philosopher in that book who argued that animals especially insects with respect to this book, um, d- did not uh, have any kind of conscious awareness, etc. And I, I tend to agree with insects, uh, with that notion on insects. But there is in some of the higher primates, etc., uh, while not a consciousness, a conscious awareness like we have, there is a very heightened awareness of the idea that one is in pain. And again, for me, it's not even so much about the issue of pain. It's about animal death. And here, the old earth creationist wants to say that, well, the original creation uh, simply accomplished the purpose for which God intended it. And so those animals were living in ecosystems, etc., that God had intended them to live. So uh, creation was very good because they were accomplishing that purpose. But again, on this Number one, that misses the point because we don't get uh, the pre-fall animal uh, death problem. We do not get that from some vague assumption of perfection, right? It relies on textual and theological arguments for which there does not seem to be a good answer. Um, So it completely misses the point uh, in that respect. But again, to me, it just solidifies the point of the core questioner. Um, It it really has to do with if that's what God's original creation was, it was very good and it was, everything was functioning according to the way it was intended to function. And that included the death, suffering, etc. in animal populations that we find. But to me, that really just seems to impugn the character of God. Now, I'm willing to admit that I could be wrong, but I can't see any good reason. Some have tried, I think, to offer explanations for this, but I'm just not convinced. I can't see any good reason why God would allow this kind of suffering and indifference uh, towards the animal world to to carry on for billions and billions of years prior to the existence of humans. And again, I think we have good arguments from Scripture to say that there was no pre-fall animal death. So if... Young age creationism is true, which I'm persuaded of, then this question is meaningless. Remember, because we only observe about 250,000 species in the fossil record, many of which are alive today, and the ones that are died out, we have a perfect explanation for it. It was the judgment that God wrought on this earth in response to the sin of mankind. Because, again, Romans 8.22 gives us this notion that the whole entire creation groans and travails in pain because of the sin that Romans 5.12 explains Adam introduced into the world. The sin brought death, and we see immediately, immediately after that sin happens, we see the consequences in a sacrifice that was to be made for the atonement 
of that sin. An animal sacrifice in the fact that Adam and Eve were made to wear skins of an animal. And so it teaches us. It teaches us that God takes sin very, very seriously. And so those species that are missing are a reminder that God is in control, that God is the judge. What God says goes. He can create a world and he can destroy a world. And the fact that we are not consumed is by the very mercy of God. Let's say a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness, for your your mercy, for your grace. Lord, in spite of our sin, in spite of us constantly failing to miss the mark, in spite of us having not one time ever ultimately accomplished the purpose for which we are intended, thank you for loving us. Thank you for sending your Son to be that spotless lamb, that sinless sacrifice for dying on a cross for us, for redeeming us of our sin, Lord, for providing that atonement and that satisfaction, Lord, of your divine justice and divine judgment. Thank you, Father, for your mercy and grace on our lives. We're so undeserving of it, and we're so thankful for it. We love you, Lord. Thank you for the opportunity to study your word and your world, to see how they work together. And Lord, I want to thank you personally for allowing me this platform to be able to teach it to others. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, folks, I appreciate you joining us this week right here again on the Steve Schramm Show. And it's been a pleasure to speak with you again about this idea of God's original creation. Man, let's just remember that God created things for a purpose. And, you know, he created you and me, friends, for a purpose. And that purpose, uh, one of those, is to give glory as God's creation to him. As we've mentioned a couple times now in Revelation 4.11. Man, if it's our job, if it's our purpose to give God glory, then let's strive each and every day to do that in everything that we do. God bless, my friends. I hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next time.